Good morning, church. If you would please turn open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. As we can follow what uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit gave the Apostle Paul to direct Timothy as well as the church in Ephesus on how to be the church, but particularly the church's mission on preserving the truth, to keep the truth high and exalted. Uh, this morning we'll be working through verses 7 through 16. The Word of God says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. God, we ask that you would please give us the gift of your Spirit's illumination that we would understand. You would, you would make sense of these verses. That life really would be as Mark prayed earlier, it would be the outcome and the fruit of what we hear. And give us faith to respond. We thank him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all know what it feels like to be provoked. We might have these trigger words, and husbands and wives know the exact way to emote, to get their spouse to emote by saying those trigger words. And understandably, most of our lives are about avoiding provocation. We want to avoid, don't say that word, don't go to that place, I don't want to be provoked, because we usually associate negative feelings and emotions to provocation. But do we realize that we can be provoked in good ways? These two paragraphs in Paul's letter to his beloved Timothy are filled with provocation. He's he's prodding him into action. He's provoking him. There are 12 commands, 12 imperatives that Paul writes to Timothy in these few verses. That's a lot. Paul's trying to get deep into Timothy to produce a resolve in him to live the truth he is seeking to restore in the church there in Ephesus. We're given a clue in verse 12 on why Paul's provoking Timothy this way. He has come to a place of sitting under the weight of demeaning treatment by wayward teachers, some of the elders perhaps, that are in the church. Timothy at this time is probably in his early 30s. Now he's sent by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, to go and set things right in this church in Ephesus. He has, he's having 
some self-esteem issues, perhaps. He's having some, what, what does Paul want me to do? And is this work worth it? Because I don't see anything coming out of it right now. And remember, this letter is to be read aloud in the church by Timothy himself, probably. He's reading the words of Paul to the church. So Paul is again affirming Timothy's leadership to the church as Timothy is reading, for accountability's sake, what he's supposed to be in their lives. And very much so, this is a minister's passage. A minister is to, to, to take, a pastor is to take what Paul is saying to Timothy and say, there is much for me to put on. And when, when this is read aloud, Paul's not only provoking Timothy in front of the church, the Holy Spirit is provoking the church into some action. And the same spirit that spoke then is the spirit that we trust is speaking today. And the spirit, well, this is what the spirit's doing, I believe, today. He is provoking us this morning so that we will awaken from any temptation towards spiritual lethargy and apathy, so we resolve to live the truth. There are routines of our lives, and, and that uh, old cultural proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. When we get used to something, we start hating it. Our spiritual lives... Are, we're tempted to look at our spiritual walk and think, nothing's really coming about. Why even try? Nothing's changing. Relationships still are miserable. Why even try this? Why keep going? And we, we become lethargic. We become apathetic. Or we exist, we have to recognize, we exist, exist in a culture that entertains us to death. And we can just simply look for the next notification. And our... our I do believe a spiritual lethargy is simply depending upon a notification from a Bible or spiritual app on our phones or an email that we get. We, there's more for us to experience than those little ways. Now, those can provoke us into action, but when those, own, those become the substance of our spiritual walks, it's lethargic. It's apathetic. We don't want to do more. Because we just want something to be given to us. We're not putting our hands to something. Paul's he's telling Timothy, put your hands to these things. Practice them. Immerse in them. And persist in them. And the Holy Spirit is saying the same thing to us. Can our spiritual lives be described this way? Can we, they be described that way? And can they be something that others look at our lives and we say, look at my life and I, I want to pass that on to you. Are we examples to the people that are around us? to the, the people in our homes, are we examples of what God calls us to do? Let's make sure this morning that we lean into his work because it's good. It's good for us. Uh, in these paragraphs, I, I think we see a parallel structure in the two paragraphs that are there. Paul repeats himself in a different way, which all good teachers do. Because remember in, in verse 6, we looked at this last week, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained, So in this good servant, prove yourself to be a good servant, uh, he's saying good servants live the truth. That's what they do. Good servants' lives express a hope that's set on the living God. See that in verse 10. So here's our, uh, the, the 
kind of give you an outline of where we're going to go with this and taking these uh, elements in the structure of these two paragraphs. Living the truth involves, one, spiritual awareness, requires, two, a spiritual investment, and three, results in spiritual advancement. Spiritual awareness, spiritual investment, spiritual advancement. I think in the spiritual awareness, we see that in verse 7 and verse 12. Where one, in verse 7, we see a cultural awareness that Paul is telling Timothy to have. Uh, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Those those myths were, I think, the irreverent would be a, a false myths, belief systems that are based on a false logic, and two, the silly myths are the superstitions. Now, some cultural myths for us to consider. Maybe you've never thought of these as cultural myths, and I hope this can help us understand the culture within which we live, but also we are to be highlighting and exalting the truth as we're living in the culture. Here is a cultural myth. Love is love. It's a myth. It's a circular argument. If love is love, we all know how sometimes we want to love something, and then maybe three days later we don't want to love that thing anymore. So if love is the object of love, all we're doing is chasing something. Now, today, culture says, oh, no, 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 this type of love is what we're exalting. But one day, that definition is going to change. And people, again, will find themselves on the wrong side of history because they're chasing something that's circular. There's never a destination to that love. And we know from Scripture, from 1 John 4, God is love. So it follows that people who want to disregard God and be the authority over their lives would say, well, we don't want God in that picture of love. We need to have something else. So we're just going to have love in love. There's no destination. But if God is love, we have a destination of that. We have a foundation for that love. And we have a foundation to know if we are experiencing love in our relationships and we know how to give that same love. If love is love, choose your definition. Another cultural myth that we live under is follow your heart. You start looking in your heart, it's a lot of darkness in there. Remember what Jesus said about dark, uh, the heart? From within the heart, all evilness comes from. Now, there is there's a part of the heart that is light. You know, uh, Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart, for out of it flow the wellsprings of life. Be vigilant with your heart because life comes from that. So we have this weird mixture, but if you got a bunch of evil, it's tainting that mixture, isn't it? But the more we tell people and, and, and give in to following our hearts, we, just, we introduce ourselves to more misery and more confusion and frustration in life because things just don't work out. Cultural myth that we hear, and probably this is sung about more than anything other than love, is be true to you. You just need to be true to yourself. Now, within, again, our culture that just says God's, God doesn't need to be there. You don't need him. Uh, within, be true to yourself is adding to the problem. See, our problem is not that we don't think of ourselves enough. It's that we think of ourselves too much, right? We love me. So when we're going to do me, like get mine, you're just telling everybody in your life, if you don't agree with me and you don't want what I want, I will leave you or destroy you. That's what I'll do. So either that's avoidance or abuse. 
in all of our relationships. Manipulating to try to get from others what we feel because we need to be true to ourselves. Remember, if we're digging down deep inside of ourselves, we don't find something that's good. So we think we just got to dig deeper. And so if I'm keep on, well, the problem then must not be with me. It has to be with other people around me. So I need to change the people that are around me. These are unbiblical concepts because God says, one, where does salvation come from? Outside of ourselves. It doesn't come from digging deeper. It also says, find yourself by losing yourself. Jesus said, if you lose yourself for my sake and the gospel's, then you'll find it. Believers are to live unique lives that look so unique because of what they don't hold on to. Because they, they found themselves in Christ. I could go on a long time about cultural myths. So I'll just give one more. I think it's just pertinent for uh, our, our day. Uh, here's a, a cultural myth is that science has made religion unnecessary. That is a myth because all it's done is take the faith that we are supposed to have in God and puts it in science. That's why we hear the phrase all the time, the science. It's just a cultural God right now that everybody's bowing down to. It has, it's helpful. We're not to obliterate science, but we're to recognize as believers and be those that recognize that science and Christianity are friends. They're not foes. They get along. Most every scientific research can be found in Scripture with the origins, like archaeology, they still they will be repudiating God. But archaeologists will still go to the Bible to make sure they're in the right place finding the right thing. They still use it as a resource book. God is there. And we live in a culture that hates him. So we should be people that love him so well and experience his love, that it's attractive to those outside, but also inside, it's transferable. Now, some silly myths. I just want to pick on these. They're a little pet peevish to me, but I see Christians do them too much. One is knocking on wood. Please stop doing that. (laughs) What can be fun and silly can be, I don't think God's sovereign. (laughs) I have to knock on wood to make sure... Uh, frailty and, and penalty doesn't come my way. No, we trust the Lord. That's what we do. So please don't knock on wood. If you cross your fingers, please don't do that. Like, hopeful. Praying. That's an oxymoron. We don't pray like this. We pray with confidence because we have a sovereign God who answers our prayers. Sometimes... His answer to our prayer is no. Sometimes it's wait. We don't do well with those because we want it now. We like the microwave, not the oven. Can I just heat something up real fast and get it real quick? Last one. I think this, this affects everybody, every believer. God must bless me today because I read my Bible. That's a silly superstition because it doesn't understand God's love. Listen, Jeremiah 31 says he will never, his promise is this, with the new covenant that Jesus has given us because of his death in our place and his resurrection, he will never turn away from doing good to us. It doesn't doesn't depend on how well we're doing today or if we've checked off a few boxes or if we just feel like I'm having a good day. You know, my uh, last year, 
last year in my Bible class over at North Lake, uh, it was, we did this small group thing. I met with the senior guys for this one particular occasion. And they were talking about how that day particularly was a bad day. But one of their classmates got expelled. That's why it was a bad day for them. Like, it's just a bad day. I'm like, Pastor Jeff, you ever have a bad day? And I said, yeah. I have to go back, I think, to when I was a teenager to remember it. They looked at me. What do you mean? I said, well, guys, I've just been able, I've been able to read the Scriptures enough and learn that really when God promises me good, even what I think is bad, he's going to turn around in some way to bless me. And it was a week later that I found out I had cancer on my lip. So I went back to him and I said, hey, I had a bad day. But let me tell you, it was a bad probably two hours until I began, and I did what, what Psalm 73 and all the Psalms, when, they, when you look out in the situation of life and you're not looking at God and we start to get this catastrophe feeling that overcomes us. I said, but I recognize, no, God, this is not out of bounds of your sovereignty. I've not stepped out. You don't know what's going on. Oh, no. Jeff's a preacher, and he's got cancer on his lip. What's going to happen? No, God, God just reminded me. He owns my mouth. That's what he did. I said, all right, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. So every moment of our days, that's what we're saying. God, I trust you. That's what he's looking to get from us. He doesn't want necessarily our actions first. He wants our trust, and our actions flow out of the trust that we have. God, I trust you. This day looks miserable. I don't know what's going to happen. Look, there are times when, when the day caves in. My wife and I just have these experiences where we just start laughing, we literally laugh. At, we'd like, what else? Come up, bring it. Give us something else to laugh at because this, the day is caving in. Those happen. But our perspective on them can be very different. And as believers, they should be different because people should be able to see that in us. This awareness, spiritual awareness, also in verse 12, we find is a relational awareness. Timothy was letting people in the church despise him. Now, I say it that way on purpose. Timothy was letting people despise him. Now, he wasn't supposed to bow up. You will respect me. That's not what Paul tells him to do. Paul tells him not to correct them with his words. What does he say? Correct them with his example, with his actions. So we think, oh, I've got to stand up for myself. No, when we do that, listen, we are fighting for something that we already have. We're actually fighting for less than we already have. You know what we have? Ephesians 2.6 tells us this. Because of salvation, we are seated with Jesus in heavenly places. We are presently, right now, spiritual component with Jesus, who, remember, has been given all authority and he reigns and rules over all things. We are seated with him. And nobody can tell us to get out of that seat. But what we do is when we want something from people, we, we, allow, we give a part of that authority over to other people and they start talking over us and we act like, Oh, he just kicked me out of my seat next to Jesus. And what am I going to do now? And what, do I, what work do I need to do to get their favor in order? To... 
Timothy could have been experiencing that. We know that. We, we feel that all the time. Paul's telling him, remember who you are. Remember your identity. Remember and be bold in your identity. To be able to understand, though people try to demean and they will throw up barbs, sadly, believers will do it. The church will bite. Remember Paul tells the Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, he's telling it to Christians. Don't do that, but it happens. Look, you don't have to give authority that God has given you. You don't have to give that away in that moment. And when there's offense, like we walk around thinking that people offend us so much, you know why? It's because something, we want something inside of us. We're picking up that offense. When somebody lays it down, we walk over and like, well, I guess I'm going to put that on too because I'm just miserable and go eat some worms because nobody likes me. Oh, you don't like me? Okay, I'll take that and put that on too. Look, the enemy of our souls loves when we do that. But oh, that we would be a people that will remember who we are in Christ to hold our head high spiritually to say, no matter what you throw at me, you will not separate me from the love of Jesus. You will never, ever separate because his love's too strong. It's not about my love for him. It's about his love for me. And when I know it, I learn it, I understand it, I want more of it, and I'm secure in it. I'm secure in it, and I will last. So our demeanor should be not that we fight for something when we're feeling that people are demeaning us and putting us down sinfully. Our response should be, Jesus, I trust you. I submit to your authority. I'm not going to give your authority to somebody else. We're going to trust his authority. Then the second component is a spiritual investment. We see this in verses 8, 12, 13 through 15. Paul tells him, train yourself for godliness. And he says bodily training has some value. Because it, it allows us, and he's talking about this word training is the same word that we get gymnasium from. So everybody understands. We know exactly what that looks like and what that feels like. We, we capture what Paul's saying. The bodily training for everybody, it's helpful because it, it allows us to experience life fully. Not, not, and we talked about this last week. With, with a physical wellness that's good and it helps us love Jesus better because we're not so worn out and hopefully not, a little less crotchety about life. You just feel miserable. But no matter how much we exercise, we will not add span time to our lives. Listen, we don't exercise because we're nervous about death, which is why a lot of people exercise, or they're just completely in love with themselves and they stand in front of mirrors a lot. <laughs> you know, that's why gyms have mirrors everywhere when they're lifting weights. It's like, oh, yeah. I love me. Hope everybody else is watching me to love me too. It's just sometimes a meathead paradise. But I digress. Listen, we don't exercise because we're nervous about death. We, we exercise to feel well. It's good. It has value. So we can love God and love others the way he wants us to. But Paul draws a distinction between a bodily training and a spiritual training. He says, while this training is, it's got, bodily training has some value, godly training has a whole bunch more value because why? It shows up in this life, but also for eternity, for the life to come. 
Bodily training does not get us to experience God more in heaven. Loving Jesus with everything that we are, with a total commitment. Now look, he's writing to people that understand Olympics. They understand that stuff like we do. We understand the total commitment that it takes for people to train, and we hear their stories endlessly when, when we're watching the Olympics and they're happening. We, all of this, it started at two years old, and now they're 22, and it's been 20 years of devotion. Paul wants us to think that. The Spirit wants us to think that. This is a life total commitment. And it looks like disciplining ourselves to make sure, we're, well, I don't want to eat that because it's going to hamper my ability to perform Spiritually, we do the same things. I, don't, I want to avoid that so I can spiritually be strong in order to do what God's calling me to do. That's, it, has, it has effect in this life, but listen. With all of our means of grace, with prayer and scripture leading and meditation and fasting, all the spiritual disciplines, called the means of grace to experience God, with all of those when we do them, listen, we are increasing our capacity to enjoy God forever in heaven. We are building up our spiritual muscles to be able to be filled with him. And that's the goal. When we see him face to face, this word godliness there, it's, a, uh, it's that weird mixture of love and fear. The fear, not so much the cowering, but the fear that intrigues us and says, I see your power. I'm a little afraid of it, but I'm drawn to it more. I'm drawn to experience it because we see this huge, enormous, loving God who has open arms and he says, come to me and be with me and experience me. That's the godliness. So we, we train ourselves for that. How do we do that? We just we live before him. There's an old uh, Latin phrase called corum Deo. It's living in the presence of God or before the face of God. Everything that we do. Everything that we do is before him. Everything we do is in his presence. We train ourselves for godliness. We don't separate ourselves and have, have our work life and then our spiritual life or our, our relational life. Our relationship with him touches everything. It touches everything. And that's why it has, it has value in this life. We have a perspective that gives us sense, that gives us understanding of what we are and what we're experiencing, and what others are, and what they're experiencing. But we train ourselves for the godliness that has the, the eternal value, that we are increasing our capacity to be filled with God, with him in heaven. And a spiritual investment looks like setting an example. In verse 12, No one despising you for your youth, but set, an ex- set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. I don't, I don't really have to open up those, do I? You know those. Spirit, you know, is your spirit, but what I would ask in these, one, two, three, four, five, in these five categories, five categories, five categories, notice we are to operate in those things so they're transferable. Is your speech something you want to pass on to another believer or a young uh, somebody who's new in the faith that's learning, looking to learn, to grow. Is your conduct something that you can transfer, give away? Is your love, your faith level? Your love for others, your love for the people of God. Are we more aware of how the people of God irritate us more than we want to lay down our lives for one another? Faith level, do we sound like we have faith for life? Purity. 
Do we want to pass? Is that something we can invite somebody in and say, hey, watch my life and walk in purity? That's setting the example. And, and he's to do that as a young man, but he's to do that through the power of the Spirit because that captures everybody's attention. And he says, until he comes, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He's talking about devotion to church, devotion to public worship. Paul was commending as, as well as commanding the corporate gathering of God's people. They are to read the scriptures out loud. That's why we take time at the beginning of every message to read the verses out loud. So we can, can see them, feel them. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That, that can do as much or more just by hearing the Word of God preached, hearing the Word of God read, than hearing it preached. Both are crucial. I'm not doing that because hope. No, it's because they are intertwined. <laughs> Somebody will catch me on that. All right, we read the Scriptures out loud, and we call attention to its worth and its value. This is exhortation. We highlight who God is, and we look at our own lives and say, do we match? Do we understand? Does this coincide? And we give the teaching, is, is a, this comes from Nehemiah 8, verse 8. It gives the sense that we're all on the same page. We understand what God's saying. Nehemiah 8, verse 8 says, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's what preaching and teaching is. So we understand. We understand the cultural, contextual issues. We're able to relate them. But listen, the truth is there. And the truth is for us to grab onto, immerse ourselves in, live through, and live with, live in. And then he tells him in verse 14 to not, neg not neglect the gift that he has. He's reminding him of a proper motivation. This is probably Paul's greatest provocation is provoking was to remind Timothy that God's the one that called him, even though Paul asked him, hey, will you go to Ephesus and help me out? God's the one that did it first. God called him to it, and God also equipped him for this ministry task. He was physically sent to Ephesus by Paul, but spiritually sent by God. And God used the gift of prophecy to confirm this calling upon Timothy. And the elders laid their hands, maybe these same exact elders were part of that council that laid their hands on him. And they knew it too. This guy's called for a ministry task. Now, we all have a call for a ministry task, but it, it's worked out and expressed differently based on how the Spirit gives that gifting out. But we all should feel, God's called me to this. If we're looking too much at what we get from what we, that we're giving ourselves in our ministry context, whatever gift that is, if we concentrate too much on fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness, fruitfulness, we'll get puffed up. Wow, this is really good. I'm doing something great. Lack of fruitfulness, I must be missing it. Nothing's happening. Now remember, you sit with Christ. He called you. He called you to go out and labor and toil and struggle so the gospel can be clearly seen. The Holy Spirit equipped you. The Holy Spirit called you. And we work at the gift that he's given us to refine it so it has greater gospel impact. We don't let it sit dormant. 
We use it. But we use it in working under the proper power of the Holy Spirit to complete the task. And then when Paul tells him about practice, immerse, keep a close watch, persist, he's talking about a consistency so there's a progress. We all need to make sure we're walking toward Jesus in faith every day. Some around us may run faster than we do. Some may walk slower than we do. Maybe we've walked or run faster in our own spiritual lives compared to what we're experiencing today. The, the goal is not to how fast, the pace. The goal is the progress. We need to be pursuing Jesus for change. So look, there, there, might, be, there might be something in you that says, you know, you know, am I different than I was yesterday? I don't feel that. Well, am I different from last year? No, I could be a little different. Am I different from 10 years ago in Christ? That we should say, yeah, the difference. I see it. I feel that. See, when we look microscopically at where we are, we get discouraged. But if we look at the scope of, of God's relationship with us and how his love and faithfulness is expressed to us over a series of time, it encourages us. So remember what God has done. But every day our attitude is, Jesus, I just want to look at you. I just want to see you. I just want to walk with you. I want to walk toward you. I, just want, I don't want to be found stagnant or regressing. I, I want to see you and I want to trust you. Sanctification is about progress. We want to be more like Jesus than we once were. And we just have the focus on Christ over and over and over again. So we practice, we immerse, we keep a close watch to make sure that what we're saying and what we're doing matches up and we persist. There's a need for endurance because there's spiritual advancement that's ahead. We see this at the last sentence of each of those paragraphs, verses 10 and 16, where in verse 10 he says, there's, there's a hard work from hope. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. We're not toiling and striving out of our own energies, out of our own willpower. We need his power in order for us to toil and work and labor. But we don't toil and work and labor for our own petty kingdoms. That we want other people to bow down to our reign and rule. We do this weird and little manipulative ways and we do it with our Ignoring of people or attacking people. Psalm 46.10, famous verse, Be still and know that I am God. We love that verse. But another reading could be, Cease striving. Stop fighting and know that he's God. It's helpful for us to think through, God, am I toiling and striving and struggling for the right things? Because if I'm doing it for the right things, there will be a sense of God's joy and peace over my life, even though it's exhausting and babies keep me up at night and God is, remind me please, or sickness keeps us up. Our work for kingdom advancement should be a toil and a striving, but with the right result and the right result in mind. It's the salvation of sinners. Again, Paul is reminding Timothy, who is the savior, uh, hope, uh, uh, hope set on living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, gotta look at that closely. Who's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So is he saving everybody or is he saving a few? 
Another way to read this, and this commentators have just tried to figure out what Paul exactly meant when he originally wrote this. Who's the Savior? And one way you could think about this, who, this is not universalism. God just doesn't save everybody. Jesus says there many find the path to destruction, few find the path to eternal life. It's a reality that we know. So Paul's not going to go against Jesus and say, you know what, God changed his mind. He's just saving everybody now. No, you can read that. Who is the Savior of all types of people, ethnicities, we know from Revelation, tribes, tongues, nations, ethnicities. He's the Savior of all types of peoples. But instead of especially, particularly those who believe, faith is required for salvation. But here's what we remember. When we give our hope that way, God saves people. 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Dear friend, Christian believer, Do you sound like hope? We can easily get caught up, and and every media outlet in the world wants us to be outraged about something. We have to be discerning and have a filter of saying, is this this detracting me from hope in Christ? Am I looking at the world just like this? Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. It's just bad. It's just bad. We should never say that. Well, there's going to be adversity, absolutely, and the church is always going to suffer adversity because the devil hates God's people. It's in Revelation. It's, all, it's very graphic pictures about him wanting to devour the child of the woman. He is against us. There's a spiritual battle going on, but the difference is that we have hope. We have hope in the culmination that God really will come and answer the cry of every human being on this earth. How do I get free of me? Because I'm miserable and I don't have hope. And so I'm going to deflect deflect and blame everybody else as being hopeless because I feel it. We are those who don't shrink back. We persevere because we have our hope set on the living God who is still in control. He's never going to relinquish control. He's always going to be in control, and he wants us to be a part of it. That's what he's reminding Timothy. He saves, and he tells him in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That was, again, Paul, are you saying that Timothy's now saving himself? God did his part, now he needs to do his part. No, he's saying that God calls us to participate in the miracle of new birth by giving the gospel away and having a transferable hope that can be in us and it goes to other people and you see lights come on in them and they recognize, oh, my heart can be settled. I feel the peace of God. He's saying, yes, you participate in that. You you save them. Isn't it amazing that God would use that type of phraseology with us? Us proud, arrogant, foolish, stubborn people. And he says, no, you. God wants you to participate in his work. He wants you to live a life of hope 
that others see. And they say, I want that. I want that. But it first begins with setting our own hope on Christ. Setting our own hope. What, what struggle and component in your own soul you're feeling right now? Like, you know what? Maybe I'm, I'm looking too much at the situation around me rather than looking heavenly. Maybe I'm, I'm allowing people to dictate to me my position with God rather than God himself who says I'm seated with him. Where do we need to set our hope? It's when we set our hope, we lock it in. Final answer, we just say, I trust you, God. I trust you. I trust your word over me more than my feelings. I trust your word over me more than my actions. I want to I pay attention to those things. I want, them to, I want them to look like Jesus all the time. But God, I trust your word. Let's pray. Father, Holy Spirit, I ask that we would feel your provocation. We would feel you prompting us to a greater level of trust, a greater level to grab on to your love and experience it to where we, we will see differences in our, we will feel differently and we will, we will interact with life differently because of the truth of your love upon us and in us. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would feel your power and we would walk in your power and life really would feel differently. I pray that we would endure. I pray for perseverance over all of us because we need it. We need perseverance when we want to give up or give in. And we need to be bold and stand in the face of adversity because we have a faith on the living God and we have our hope set on the living God. Holy Spirit, do your work. Holy Spirit, empower us for life.